on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. It was a collision of a lot of different things. COVID lockdown, and there's a lot of people sitting at home just binging stuff on Netflix, and they stumble across Drive to Survive. I don't know how many people have written me saying, oh my gosh, I just got into Formula One, and I just found your podcast. This is amazing. And I was just binging. We we're in lockdown. I was just binging. I watched Drive to Survive, and I was absolutely hooked. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 112 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode, I want to thank my guest from the last episode of the show, John Maxwell, the Director of Media Relations for the WNBA's Las Vegas Aces. John was kind enough to sit down for a chat with me on my last visit to Vegas. We talked about the Aces' arrival in the city back in 2018 and how the team was received, the purchase of the Aces by Raiders owner Mark Davis, and the Aces' loyal and passionate fan base. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 111, Hoop Dreams, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. Formula One is considered to be one of the premier forms of auto racing. The cars are the fastest regulated road racing cars in the world with top speeds of upwards of 350 kilometers an hour or 215 miles per hour. F1 is also one of the richest sports in the world. With 22 races scattered across the globe, F1 reported over $2.1 billion in revenue in 2021, and it's not uncommon for the top drivers to earn well above the $100 million mark in salary alone. Add on things like endorsements and appearances, and you're talking very big money. So, is it any wonder that Las Vegas would want a piece of this pie? On March 30th, 2022, the FIA and Formula One, along with the city of Las Vegas, announced one of the worst kept secrets in motorsports. Formula One would be adding Sin City to the calendar in 2023. My guest this time around is Todd McCandless, a Formula One fanatic and the host of the Park Ferme podcast, a long-running F1-centered podcast that goes in-depth into the world of Formula One. Todd and I talked about the building interest in Formula One in the U.S. and the so-called drive-to-survive effect, and we took a deep dive into the upcoming F1 Las Vegas Grand Prix, sharing our opinions on the track, the drivers, and the impact the race will have on the city, both good and bad. Please enjoy my conversation with Todd McCandless of the Park Ferme Podcast. It's an odd thing uh, to be uh, an American and a Formula One fan, or it used to be, now not so much. Um, but I got into it when I was a very young boy, a little boy. Um, my dad liked cars. He didn't, he wasn't a shade-tier mechanic. He liked buying cars. And he liked cars and he liked to watch racing. And we used to watch uh, uh, the Indy 500, you know, and, and every once in a while a NASCAR event. And then when Formula One was on, it was on, you know, limited rotation on ABC or uh, one of those uh, stations way back when. Uh, but, uh, uh, and they would only show maybe one race and uh, two races a year. Uh, and it was generally Monaco because it's the crown jewel of the Formula One calendar. Uh, but I remember uh, back way back when, uh, 1972, as a very young boy, um, it was, you know, I would sit on the couch with my dad and watch. And I remember watching distinctly uh, the Lotus 72 John Player Special, Black with Gold. 
uh, in the hands of Emerson Fittipaldi on the wet streets of Monaco in the 1972 Grand Prix. And there was just something about the sound of it and that Matra engine and the Matra and the um, uh, just echoing through the streets of Monaco in the rain. Uh, it was just otherworldly and it just captured my imagination. And you could hear that scream of that Ferrari. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and it just was, uh, an other world experience for this very, very young, impressionable young boy. And, um, so I remember being enthralled by that. And one of the first toys I got it around here somewhere, uh, was by a British company called Corgi who made these little model F1 toys, cars. And I can remember one of the first, uh, uh cars that I got, uh, my dad had bought me this, uh, uh Corgi John player special Lotus 72. And I still have it to this very day. So I've been watching uh, for a long time, for decades. Uh, I've seen a lot come and go in Formula One. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's an it's an interesting series. And certainly back in the it, through the late seventies and the eighties and nineties, it was odd to be an American into a European sport. Everybody else is watching NASCAR and they're watching IndyCar, kart at the time. Uh, you know, watching football, baseball, all that. And here I was uh, uh, desperately trying to find Formula One coverage and, uh, you know, ordering magazines from the UK, like Autosport and Motorsport magazine, trying to stay on top of a sport that America cared very little about. But it wasn't always that way, to be honest with you. Um, there was a time, the 60s, let's say, when America is post-war, right? And Americans were in love. They, they fell in love with that little you know, European sports car, right? And they loved the sports car uh, world. And they would, it was almost kind of like Woodstock. They would go to Watkins Glen. They'd camp out in tents over the whole weekend. And they'd watch legends go through Watkins Glen um, and up in, in Canada as well. And uh, so, and then it kind of waned uh, during the 70s and 80s. And, and uh, but it's, it's certainly back on the rise now. It's interesting that you mentioned that John Player special black and gold Lotus, because I'm 99% sure that I had a model or a toy really? of one of those, not the little Corgi cars. I mean, I have uh -huh. about a billion little matchbox cars, mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that there's some, some Formula One race cars in there, but I remember having one of those John Player special cars too, oh, and wow. I probably got it from my grandfather more than likely, and it was yeah. probably something that he picked up somewhere on a vacation mm -hmm. or on a trip because yeah he was big into um big into formula one racing and big into auto racing in general but particularly formula one and it's interesting that you you mentioned about how strange it was to be in, interested in formula one as opposed to as you say nascar and indycar because at that point the indycar in the 70s and 80s, that would have been Big, Mario huge. Andretti and, yes. and guys like that. Unser. And Al yep. Unser and, and mm -hmm. all those guys. That would have been huge. So it's really fascinating that you kind of went in that opposite direction and and gravitated towards F1. Yep, I'm with you. And and I would certainly watch the Indy 500 and watch uh the you know Mario and and Unser and and um you know Ari Leindyke and and all of the greats in IndyCar and it's a great series it is still to this very day is a great series. It's just that there was something there was a mystique about Formula 1 that back in those days it, it, I think its scarcity lended itself to the mystique of Formula One because you knew instantly you were watching a racing series like no other on the planet Earth. It, the, the technology that was involved, the driving skills that were involved, this was the creme de la creme. And you could tell that. And it was very, in those days, very difficult to, to really you know, get information about Formula One as a as an American fan anyway. Um, so it was very difficult to do. But once I started getting into it and um, it, it, the racing and technology, if you ask average Formula One fans, they will tell you, oh, yeah, it's the pinnacle of technology and motorsport. And that's true. But what hooks you is it is it's not just the technology or the racing or the drivers what hooks you 
is the politics, the people, the teams, the passion, and what goes on behind those, uh, you know, those stanchions in front of the paddock. And as I started reading more and more and learning about the Piranha Club and the movers and the Bernie Ecclestones and, and, um, Max Mosley's and Dennis, Ron Dennis and, and, uh, Williams, uh, Frank, Sir Frank Williams and those people and finding out, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. You get hooked. And I, when I started the, uh, the website back in 2005, I've been saying this since then. Everybody kept saying, well, you know, we need to, we need to bring F1 to America. You know, we need an American team. Well, no, no. First it was, we need an American driver like Mario Andretti. Right. So we need another Mario Andretti. We need an American driver, an American team need to bring F1 uh, to America. And I kept saying and have said since 2005, that's backwards. You can't take F1 to America. You have to take America to F1. And there is a galactic difference between the two. Um, America is a massive market for Formula One. There's no doubt about it. But if they're not into it, whatever, they, they go around the world to other locations. And I kept saying that we have to teach our way to success. You've got to take the fans in America to Formula One. And that's exactly what the Drive to Survive series at Netflix is doing currently. And that's why it's becoming uh, so successful. You mentioned that um, that drama that has always existed within the world of Formula One all the way back to the beginning. And I mean, obviously, that was way before the world of the Internet and way before the world of Drive to Survive. And I know one of the biggest complaints about this season of Drive to Survive has been some of that drama that people have felt is is manufactured. And we'll get to that. But you you think it's fair to say that the interest, the increased interest in Formula One in the U.S., is that uh, that drive to survive effect? It is. Yeah, that's had the biggest impact, certainly here in the States, because um, up until that came out, it, it was a um, it was a collision of a lot of different things. COVID lockdown. And there's a lot of people sitting at home just binging stuff on Netflix and they stumble across drive to survive. I don't know how many people have written me saying, oh, my gosh, I just got into formula one and I just found your podcast. This is amazing. And they were like, and I was just binging. We we're in lockdown. I was just binging. I watched drive survive and I was absolutely hooked. Um, up until that point, I will tell you, Jeff, that honestly, a lot of the conventional wisdom in formula one, it was like, well, you know, the millennials, they're just not into cars. You know, they're into gadgets. They're into social media. They don't drive as much. They're not into cars. They really don't care about car racing. They're more into stick and ball sports or, or you know, their iPhones or whatever it might be. <clears throat> and I kept wondering, I, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> you know, I is a disservice to millennials and certainly Gen Z. But I'm thinking at the end of the day, um, I really don't care who you are, but if you stand right next to the track and feel, not hear, but feel one of those cars go by at 200 miles an hour and feel the ground shake, it, yeah, you'll, you'll wake up in a hurry. And, and it's, it, it's just incredibly impressive. And because of the technology being so uh, advanced in Formula One, it's got a real appeal. But you're right, Jeff. It's the drama. It's seeing the personalities come alive, not only in the drivers, but the team bosses and the regulatory body and, and seeing the conflict and friction and that drama. And people love that because at the end of the day, um, the best people to cover a sport are still the legacy Formula One journalists, the new F1 journalists, the, the legacy F1 journalists are great at it because they tell stories. And ultimately, that's what we want. Yeah, you know what? That makes perfect sense. I will freely admit that my interest in Formula One was reignited thanks to Drive to Survive. We were in a similar situation. It was lockdown. We were stuck at home. We were trying to find stuff to watch on Netflix. We'd already blown through all of the Tiger King, so we were we were done with that. <laughs> and a friend of ours actually said, hey, you, you kind of are interested in car racing. You should watch this Drive to Survive. So we did, and we were instantly hooked. We blew through the first two seasons of Drive to Survive, in like a week, maybe a week and a half. And at that point, the 2021 racing season was just getting underway. So we 
started watching the races. We watched the races. We watched the qualifying. I'd watch the practice sessions. My wife and I would talk about F1. It, it was an absolute blast. So it it really did reignite that interest for us in Formula One and get us brought into that world. And and I mean, yes, I had that connection as a child watching it with my grandfather, but at that time I didn't really get it. And now I'm into learning about the personalities and the drivers and the team principles and and even the strategies and the rules and things like that. So I've gone deep into that. And to your point about um, millennials not really being interested in in cars and car racing per se, I think that's accurate. But what they are interested in is technology. And with so many of the drivers now, like Lando Norris and Max Verstappen getting involved in um, in e-racing and uh, being involved in Twitch streaming and, and racing online and as active as they are on social media, that's where they're going to bring that that Gen Z and millennial audience in and get them interested. They may not be as interested in the cars per se, but they're definitely interested in what's going on around the cars. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt because it's uh and really like Lando appeals to Gen Z, you know, he's a young guy and Twitch streams and uh certainly he, Esteban Ocon, um, Alex Albon, uh Yuki, all these really young guys uh in the sport that appeal now to the back end of millennial and really the the head end of the the Gen Z. Um but you, but Jeff, you're you're a great case study in that there was a lot of question in media and social media about the drive to survive effect, as they call it. So the DTS effect is you went out, you've been, you've been creative with your script writing and and how you're editing and and what you're putting together. Um, That was the criticism this year. I get it, but at some level it does need to be entertaining. And as long as it isn't too egregious, you know, you have some creative Liberty, but, uh, there was a lot of concern about whether the people who got hooked on Drive to Survive and really started checking out F1, would they be turned off quickly to the sport if every race wasn't as exciting as a DTS episode? Whereas like first season, they're going crazy on the episode trying to get that Haas into 14th place, which doesn't mean a damn thing right. in a race, right? And so the question is, is it too overhyped and was it a letdown to people like you, Jeff, that started watching the series and going, well, this isn't anything like the DTS. You know what? For me, it was almost kind of the opposite effect mm. in that I watched season one and season two of Drive to Survive without having watched the associated F1 seasons. So I didn't really necessarily realize how much dramatization went into the TV series. I mean, obviously it's a reality show. They're going to do some creative editing. They're going to try to hype things up a little bit, make it a little bit more exciting, completely understandable. Anybody that's ever watched reality TV understands that that's how that works. But having watched all of the 2021 race season, basically from top to bottom, Then watching season three of Drive to Survive and seeing exactly how much they manipulated the show to make it more interesting, whether it was manufacturing this rivalry that doesn't exist between Daniel Ricardo and Lando Norris, or whether it's trying to make Nikita Mazepin look like some sort of master strategist for coming in ahead of everybody else to change over to the wet tires when the rain started during the Russian Grand Prix, and then making a big deal about him finishing in P18 instead of dead last, as he usually did, but neglecting to mention the fact that there were two cars that didn't finish the race. I kind of wonder to a degree if... DTS has become a victim of its own success in that people who watch the actual race season will now see how manipulated the TV series is. Yeah, I think, Jeff, I think you're spot on. I think people felt like that this last season maybe jumped the shark a little bit on the creative license um, and was sort of fabricating elements of the season that wasn't quite there. Um, and I think they run a very fine line there. I think you'll see the next season. They're going to have to, they'll have heard this 
and they'll have to they'll have to reel it back in a little bit and make sure they're a little more true to form. And you know, my we're giving them a hell of a season to be true to form to. Um, so far, and we're only three races in. So I think that's it. But to that point, Jeff, it did its job. Then then it it wasn't the hook. It was the bait on the hook and the actual series itself, despite the lack of outrageous and egregious prolific passing has hooked you more than the DTS. And that is actually music to F1's ear because, you know, they want you to be hooked on the series. DTS is almost like the loss leader, right? In sales. So, you know, they want you to get hooked on the series and not expect that level of drama and excitement and entertainment value and manufactured drama uh, in the actual races, because it doesn't exist. You know, is there drama? Of course there's drama in the paddock, but it's, yeah, not the same. And the one thing I'd say also for any of you out there listening that really got into DTS and loved it, if you haven't seen the Ayrton Senna documentary, mm-hmm. run, don't walk, and watch that. Because if you like Drive to Survive, that series, that 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 movie is epic. I, I worked with the uh, producers of that movie when they launched it across America, and I hosted the launch here in St. Louis for that and did a whole session before the movie about Senna and about Lotus, and and it was a wonderful event. But that, if you like Drive to Survive, you will absolutely love the documentary called Senna. Let's talk a little bit about Formula One coming to Las Vegas. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is not the first rodeo for Formula One in Las Vegas. It is mm. in this form and incarnation in that yep. a road track las vegas has hosted a formula one race previously but not exactly a, a a massive success by any stretch of the imagination right yeah it has uh as you say jeff not in this iteration but it has and it was in um 1981 to 84 if i have my math right um and it was a basically it was a circuit layout in the Caesars Palace parking lot, and it was uh, not a great event. Um, it was early eighties. Um, yeah, it just it wasn't that great. And after at eighty four, they left, and I think the um, IndyCar cart uh, took over and raced there for a little bit. And it wasn't that great of a circuit. Um, but that's not really a measuring stick on this because this uh, this iteration completely different. Uh, they're going to race on portions of the strip. Strip. It's not going to be just a course that's sort of coned out or with jersey barriers in the in a parking lot. It's going to be a proper street race in the uh, streets of Vegas. Uh, very high speed. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, Formula One as it spreads across the globe. Uh, races have come and gone, and it has always been that way, but there will always be stalwarts to the race calendar. Silverstone, the British Grand Prix, uh, Monaco, the Monaco Grand Prix will always be there. Monza, uh, the Temple of Speed in Italy, uh, Spa-Francorchamps in Belgium, which is, in my mind, one of the best tracks ever, and the Belgians did it right. And uh, so you'll have these stalwarts that are, you know, Canada, Suzuka in Japan, these things that uh, will traditionally be on. But other races come and go. Uh, We have the Austin Grand Prix or the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, uh, a fabulous track. It's a purpose-built racetrack. Um, We're going to be bringing on Miami. Uh, That is jury out. Let's wait and see. But it's in in the parking lot of the Hard Rock you know, stadium there. We'll see how they do. Uh, But Las Vegas, as they come and go around the world for races, they're looking for population epicenters in cities with massive excitement. And nobody can host thousands and thousands of people quite like Las Vegas and do it with flair and alacrity. And, uh, and there's something for everyone out there. And, uh, it's just what Vegas is made for, you know? And so with a, with a really fast street circuit. And all the uh, hotels that you could possibly want, hotel rooms, uh, food and, and, and fun, uh, you know, that excitement and that energy. And as we talked about it on our podcast, uh, that excitement, Las Vegas carries a lot of water. And there was some criticism about the track layout, how it didn't look too complex or too technical. That maybe let's give them time and uh, we'll see. But Vegas will carry it. 
because Vegas itself is an enigma and the attraction. And so every single driver seems absolutely elated to be going to Vegas. So it's fair to say then that really Las Vegas was the next logical choice to host an F1 race. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. You know, Miami, because it's a population center, it's uh, they've tried there in the past, but Vegas was always, I think, on the radar. The big criticism that seems to have popped up on social media among all the so-called F1 purists is, oh, God, another street track. What do we need that for? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am one of those F1 purists. Uh, you know, you can't be watching since the early 70s and not be a bit of an F1 snob. I apologize up front. Uh, no, I, you know, I, I think, Jeff, there's a there's this fine line F1 and you, you have to have racing economics here. The system has to make financial sense. And in order to do that. Let's take tracks. In order to make people would say, well, why don't we go to one of the existing tracks in America? Well, track economics have to have to work. And to upgrade one of our tracks to a grade one FIA sanctioned track, which is required for Formula One, would cost a lot of money. And the track owners don't necessarily have that money to invest in the track. Um, the sanctioning fees to host a Formula One race are in the neighborhood of $25 million, uh, per year. Um, so there is a lot of hurdles to be jumped. And being able to set up a street circuit in some cases can be more affordable or more doable or more achievable uh, than in, in building a purpose-built track like uh, in Austin. So while I understand they don't want another street race, I think Formula One has tried to make sure that we're not just replicating a bunch of Monaco's. Now, Monaco is its own enigma, but uh, it's really tight. It's a slow average speed. Uh, there's no passing hardly at all. Uh, so they didn't want to repeat that. So you've got Singapore, very fast night race on the track. You've got uh, now Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, incredibly fast street circuit, right? Sochi was a street circuit before it was canceled. Uh, Vegas looks to be a very fast street circuit. So I have some deference for Formula One as they move to Vegas you know, expecting someone to build a purpose-built racetrack somewhere out there is a tall order. But to put together a street circuit in the heart, on the strip, that's what they're going for. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're getting, you know. Um, so will they make some track adjustments later on? Probably. But, I, you know, I think we need it. We need to have some deference here. And let's see how it goes. Is there any concern amongst the the F1 snobs? again, no offense intended, um, that we could run into another incident similar to what we saw during the Austin race last year with Megan the Stallion in that the celebrities that are likely to attend the Las Vegas race, I mean, Vegas is the, the entertainment capital of the world. You can't argue that. We're probably going to be looking at a, a massive concentration of celebrities showing up at this event. Is there any concern that the race itself will become secondary to the spectacle of the events surrounding the race. That is, it, it, Jeff, you've solidified exactly what I was a little concerned about in our podcast that we talked about this. Um, as far as celebrities go, Formula One is always, and this is back when Bernie Eccleston own Formula One and he, they would always get celebrities, you know, and bring celebrities in the paddock and you'd, you know, you'd meet all these uh, movie stars and stuff like that. And it was always, they have fashion shows and it was always uh, this uh, pomp and circumstance and, and elegance. Um, but in the, you know, recently, um, I, uh, none of that appeals to me. I couldn't care less. I rode uh, normally when I get, when I went, to the races, I had media cred, so I was in the media center, right? And so I'm I'm riding out on a out of the circuit on a van with um, um, the actor's name Joey from Friends. Uh, actor's name escapes me. Um, oh, uh, Matt LeBlanc. Yeah, so I'm with Matt LeBlanc, and so I'm sitting there, and Matt. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. So, Matt, you know, I'm really good friends with Roman Grosjean. Oh, that's cool. You know, that's great. Um, and he was like, yeah. And so and he starts to tell me all about everyone. I was like, dude, 
no no offense i've been watching 72 i'm i got it i got it um you know whatever dude uh i'm not you know that none of that impresses me i'm not into that i'm more impressed about meeting a guy like nigel roebuck who's a legend in, in f1 journalism i'm more impressed with meeting a um the front right tire changer for ferrari uh or meeting the head of shell's fuel operations in the back of the ferrari garage those people are amazing and um but but I feel like that celebrity element is always there because it does appeal uh, to a certain uh, slice of the uh, fan pie, if you will. Uh, but Vegas could run the risk of going so glitzy and so over the top in in true Vegas style with Vegas dancers and the whole thing that if the racetrack itself doesn't really deliver entertaining racing or even good racing then it and it becomes about vegas and the show and the racing is just second rate and and i hope that's not the case the racing does need to live up to the pomp and circumstance that they may put around that racing package if that makes sense absolutely and you're right i mean it's it's not uncommon when you're watching a race now to see Tom Cruise in the Red Bull paddock or Daniel yep. Craig in with Aston Martin. And, and yep. it just, that makes sense. But as I say, I think my concern is it's just going to be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as it you will. say, in, in typical yeah. Vegas fashion, just over yep. the top, insane stupidity. Yeah. Yeah, it will. And, you know, they, you know, these people, they get wooed to go to the race. And, and I think that was some of the, the fallout was these people are pretty much, offered these roles to come to these races gratis they're wined and dined and they get on the paddock and nobody will talk to a guy like martin brundle are you kidding me i could spend a fortnight interviewing martin brundle just talking about formula one and that one of these people had the the tenacity not to talk to martin that's astounding to me yep absolutely unbelievable um spectacle and glitz and glamour aside how do you think the drivers are going to receive this track? Well, that's a good point. Uh, so the drivers, here's the good, here's the good news about drivers. So drivers are pretty typical. They're pretty candid, you know, now some of them will toe the party line about Vegas and they'll, you know, I think of like a Nico Rosberg who's never met a negative element in Formula One in his life, you know, and anytime you ask him, Oh, it's the greatest, you know, and that's fine. And I love Nico for that. I, you know, and I appreciate that. I got a lot of deference for that, but I think they're going to tell you, and they're pretty candid. They'll say that, yeah, you know, it's not too tough of a track. It is a tough track. Uh, if it's too bumpy, they'll kind of tell you the bumps are kind of an issue. Um, if it uh, if it's dangerous, they'll tell you that. Um, they'll say, whoa, you know, this is like way too fast for this uh, this layout or or this corner or breaking zone or you know, they're pretty candid about that. And so they should be because it's their lives on the line, not ours, right? Um, so I think that I think you'll get a candid response from them, uh, and it won't be tarnished by the by the glamour of Vegas. I think they're they they're pretty. I think they're pretty matter of fact about that. Um, so, yeah, I think the drivers at the end of the day, the drivers love speed and they love to go fast. That's, that's, that's a given. And they tend to like very high speed corners, sweeping corners, and even medium speed corners. They don't like Mickey mouse sections. And they don't like slow hairpins and slow corners and those kind of things. They love to be at speed at challenging corners like R one thirty or Eau Rouge or a Spoon Curve or Pujol at Spa. They love these kinds of corners. So if Vegas can deliver on that speed, but also that those corners are sweeping, that they're challenging, uh, good passing zones. The drivers are going to love it. If it's not, I think back, Jeff, to the Spanish Grand Prix or European Grand Prix at Valencia. It, you know, I called it a Jersey Barrier Grand Prix because they just set up a bunch of Jersey Barriers. And so the drivers weren't that crazy about it and you knew about it. That being said, though, I mean, you say that the drivers will speak up if they think that there's something not right with the track or not right with the racing situation. The question then becomes, will the FIA listen? Because it certainly seems as of late with some incidents and some tracks that maybe they're not quite willing to listen to the drivers. 
Yeah, that's a good point, Jeff. Yeah, there is a cost benefit analysis that's done and a risk reward benefit, you know, that's done. Um, the FI will listen. At the end of the day, the FI is one of the one of, if not the chief uh, function of the FI is is safety. And they take it very seriously. They really do. Uh, you think of the the death of Senna ever since then, uh, the the safety measures that then FIA President Max Mosley brought in uh, were amazing. But even John taught with the halo, uh, with some of the safety innovations that he's brought in, and even some of the safety innovations on this year's car due to the Roman Grosjean crash recently, uh, that, which was that fireball. Mm-hmm. And um, so they take safety very seriously. They have to be measured in response because remember, if they show up for the first race and the drivers have a serious safety concern about a particular area of the track, they will try to remedy that situation if they themselves deem it dangerous. And they could use reprofiling or, or, you know, chicanes or something if they felt truly that it was just literally too dangerous. Now, they do all their due diligence before that. They run simulations on the track. They have good computational simulations they run. Uh, There'll be visits as it's being built and before they even get there. Uh, Any changes that they feel need to be done, uh, they'll they'll voice those along the way. So, it shouldn't catch anyone uh, off guard in Vegas. Um, But having said all that, (laughs) that race is there. And and they're going to have that race, you know, and so they'll do a lot of due diligence and homework up front to make sure it's as safe as possible. But to your point, Jeff, if they got there and the driver said, you know, we still think this is an issue, I think they'll take it seriously because if they don't, uh, they'll have a hell of a lot to answer for if somebody gets injured. After the break, Todd and I discuss the effect of having Formula One take over the Vegas Strip and the surrounding areas, including the positives and negatives. And I get Todd's opinion on what the fans will think of the track and the event. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. How do you think the fans are going to receive this race? I mean, I know one of the biggest complaints with Miami um, was the cost. Uh, I mean, the Mm. prices, I'd like to say Miami priced themselves out of fans, but sold out. They sold out. So obviously they didn't. But what do you think the fans will think of this race? Well, I think, I think, well, I think very much like Miami uh, and uh, Miami, I don't know, it sold out in, I mean, record time. It was just, I don't know if it was even a day or two, you know, it was sold out. Um, I think you'll see that in Vegas because Vegas has that kind of appeal. Um, and so I think you'll see it sold out quickly. Um the prices will be up. That also is a benefit of the DTS impact on Formula One. Uh, so prices now have gone way up. And realize at first blush, you could get upset about that, but they ate it for two years during COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Formula One was just bleeding uh, like every other racing series, like every other stick and ball sport. I'm not picking on Formula One. Uh, so it's time to play catch up. And the drive to survive is so popular now that it's bringing lots of interest and a lot of people to the races. It's, it, it, now, here's where my pure snob comes out. It's a shame because several years ago, I remember the first race at Austin, I could go and buy a $99 general admission ticket, walk down to turn 9, 10, 11, and sit on the grassy knoll next to the grandstands and see the best place to see the track. Mm-hmm. And for 99 bucks, right? And now it's quite a bit different. And that's unfortunate. Um, but I'm sure they've, the actuarials at F1 have, have done the math and they realize what the market will bear. And Miami's a good uh, litmus test for that. So it'll be in that neighborhood. If I were to spitball it, um, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm saying the costs for the Vegas tickets will be double what Miami was starting. Mm, I, I that's think, a bold statement. I, I just yeah. based based on knowing my own experience from from yeah. going to Vegas and and seeing how events are handled in Las Vegas, I can't help but think you're going to see prices at least one and a half times, maybe even double what you were seeing in Miami. I mean, Vegas is that's a tourist city. It's a city that, that is their economy is 
99% based on mm-hmm. tourism. As I say, 42 million people a year coming yep. to Las Vegas for for various events. Now that you've got Raiders football, you've got Vegas Golden Knights mm-hmm. hockey, you've got professional yep. sports that are that are there, bringing in an event like Formula One is, I think, just going to... Again, you're going to see this this giant influx of people, and it's going to be very, very expensive for people to attend. I mean, as much as I am a Vegas fanatic and as much as I am a Formula One fanatic, I will be more than happy to watch this race from the comfort of my living room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I totally understand. Well, you, you raise a good point. I I hadn't thought about ticket prices really, uh, but I definitely could see that. And some of that could play into the fact that it is a street race. How much grandstands are they going to put up and how many seats are they going to have available? Right. And I think Vegas being Vegas and knowing how they price things like, hotels for example during major events i mean consumer electronics show used to be the biggest event that came to las vegas every year it was i think it was 150 or 200,000 people that would come into ces every year obviously Mm -hmm. pre-covid and if you wanted to try to get a hotel room on the strip during ces that same room that you booked for a random tuesday at bally's in the middle of august for $35 a night was going to cost you $500 a night during CES. So I can only imagine what the hotel room costs are going to be like during an event like formula one. Yeah. I've got friends that have said, I'm going to book a balcony suite at the Cosmo and I'm looking at them going, Oh really? Do you have $7,000 a night? Because I will (laughs) guarantee you that's what you're going to be paying for a balcony suite at the Cosmo. And depending on how they build, how they run the race, how they run the track and where they build grandstands, I stayed in a balcony suite in the Cosmo back in December, not for $7,000 a night. I did not have that good of a view of Las Vegas right. Boulevard from where I right. was staying. <laughs> right. So you're going to hear the race and you're going to be able to see it on the big TV that you've got on in your suite, but right. you're not going to be able to see it from up there. No, it's no, it, it's going to be nuts. It's going to be beyond insane. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think the uh, the price of rooms is going to be very high. Um, you may see some people staying out in Henderson and and uh, getting out of town, you know, off the strip somewhere. Uh, but, yeah, that it, it is a good point. Um, and in a lot of ways, because it's a road course or a street circuit or, or whatever it might be. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the best seat in the house is on your TV, you know, at home. It just is. You know, I went many, many years ago. I think it was like 1998. I went to the Molson Indy in Vancouver mm. Mm-hmm. And same deal, paid it, got a general admission ticket and went in, found a spot along the track and stood there and watched the race, the race in air quotes. Yeah. I watched 15 cars or however many it was rip past me at 200 miles an hour every right. minute and a half. That was what I watched. <laughs> That's what you saw. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. That was what I saw. There was a big screen up beside me that I was able to watch the other whatever minute and and 25 seconds of the lap is where I watched that and then oh here they come. <laughs> and then there was that one guy. <laughs> At the end, that was what I watched, right? <laughs> right. And, so right. I don't think people realize that that's what it's going to be like in in Vegas. I had somebody the other day saying, "Oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna uh, park out a spot on one of those pedestrian overpasses over the strip," and I laughed and went, "You really think they're going to allow people to just stand there and watch it for free?" <laughs> Where do you think they're going to no. hang the sponsor banners on the yeah, back yeah. side of that? So nobody can see nothing. Right. I mean, I, and I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound negative. I don't want to sound like I'm crapping all over this event because I think it's going to be amazing. It's going to be great for the city. I think it's going to be and as much as I dislike the idea of the, the spectacle. I think mm-hmm. the spectacle of it is going to be great. And I can't wait to watch that money shot of the cars along the strip with all the yeah, casinos. That's, that's going to be outstanding, but I can't help, but think the other side of it, this is going to be just a nightmare. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, you know, it, it's kind of that way when you get a new race, it takes a few, it, it takes a few of them for people to figure out where the real good spots are, where the good hotels are, the restaurants, those kind of things. And it takes a little bit, even like at Coda in Austin, you know, uh, at first blush in the first race, everybody's like, oh, well, I want to be, you know, in the infield section where that big turn that was, you know, uh, profiled after turn eight at Turkey and, and um, 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, those kind of turns and that infield section. And um, I mean, it's okay, but in, in my mind, it's, it's not the best place at all. Uh, the best place is out at 10, you know, turn 10, 11, uh, 9, 10, 11, just out of the S's or through the S's, because that's where you see, a Formula One car do exactly what a Formula One car does best. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to watch that car go through those S's, come out of those S's, through those turns at a rate of knots at full tilt is mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. And so those are the best places. And you can see them for a long time. After they go by, you can see them turn. You know, So it takes a little while to figure those things out. And it takes a few races. I would say two or three years into the Vegas Grand Prix, people have that all sussed out. They'll, they'll know exactly where the best place to sit is. The other thing that I can't wait to hear is the reaction from the locals uh, when it comes to the effect that this has on getting around the city and traffic in and around Las Vegas Boulevard. I mean, there already are some events that happen in Las Vegas over the course of the year that result in closures or partial closures of the strip. Um, New Year's Eve, for example, every year the strip is entirely shut down from, I think, around four or five in the evening until about two o'clock in the morning. Um, The Rock and Roll Marathon every year, that results in partial closures along Las Vegas Boulevard. Um, The NFL draft that just happened back at the end of April here, that had some closures in and around Bellagio and Flamingo and Bally's and in and around the area where they had tents set up and, and, and such for fan events. But when it comes to what's going to hit them with formula one, I just think, yeah, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> no, no, it'll be, it'll be pretty difficult, pretty challenging. And the one thing about uh, the formula one races and Austin struggled with this quite a bit. Um, uh, as a lot of tracks, I'm not picking on, on Bobby and Austin or at Coda at all, but a lot do, uh, Montreal, uh, is one of the best at it, uh, because they have the public transportation, the rail that goes from the city right over to Ile Notre Dame and just drops you out the Grand Prix and mm-hmm. it's just straight shot back and forth, constantly bringing people in and out. And it is a great, um, great way to move people. I think Vegas but I think you're right, Jeff. I think it'll be interesting to see if the city does a little bit of a research and how we can move people and how we can get people around this city with a good portion of it, uh, the street blocked off and how we're going to get fans to and from. Uh, is it all just going to be foot traffic up and down the strip to the race uh, and then foot traffic all the way back home? Or would they be better off in, in providing some sort of transport that moves them quickly? You know, I, I don't know. From my own experience of being in Las Vegas, there is no quick way to get up and yeah. down the Las Vegas Strip. There, there, really, yeah, I agree. There, there just isn't. I mean, if you're there, I've been there on a on a Saturday night walking in the middle of yeah. June, and it is just wall to wall people. And it is wall to wall cars. The people are moving Mm -hmm. faster than the cars, which is not saying much because the people are not moving quickly. There is no really good public transportation that goes along the strip. Um, The deuce bus that currently runs along there stops everywhere uh it takes you forever to make your way along the strip there is a monorail that runs along the backside and the Mm -hmm. east side of the strip and the backside of the uh, the resorts with stops at at a few of the hotels but again it it is not designed to carry a hundred and forty thousand people at once Um, there is very limited parking there is very limited access to all of those resorts i mean you're looking at a very significant number of resorts and hotels that are not going to be accessible for a very significant amount of time and i think that's the other thing that people aren't necessarily realizing with an event like this is the formula one race the main event race in and of itself is a very small part 
of the event yeah. of the weekend. You've got three qualifying or three practice sessions plus a qualifying session technically three qualifying sessions, plus the F2 mm -hmm. events, plus the W series, plus the, the various other events and yep. media events and all the other races and things that happen over the course of, of that weekend. Never mind the weeks leading up to the actual event where you're installing barricades and installing barriers right. and events and right. signage. And then as well, the the county has said that they are going to go ahead and do all this resurfacing work on the, the routes, because if you've ever driven on Las Vegas Boulevard, you know, you think the porpoising yeah. is bad this year. Yeah, it does yeah. that at low speed in a regular car. So yeah. <laughs> it does that right now. So they're going to be doing all this resurfacing work for the next year and, and a half to lead up to this event again. My question is, never mind. The tourists are going to love this thing. The mm -hmm. tourists are going to think this is the greatest thing ever, maybe until they see the room rates. But <laughs> leading up to that, I'm more curious about how the locals are going to feel. I mean, in street events, places like Monaco or, or Jeddah or any of the places where they have street events, I mean, how do the locals receive those events and deal with all those closures anyways? Yeah, and those events, you know, they they did a really good job of it. I think like Singapore um, uh, and Jeddah. And the other thing is, is that Singapore most more so, but Jeddah, Sochi, they didn't have the turnout. You mm -hmm. know, there wasn't that many fans there. Uh, much to the chagrin of a Formula One. But um, but when you put one hundred and forty, hundred fifty thousand people there, that's a different story. You mm -hmm. know, uh, so Canada does that well. Um, Monaco seems to do that well, uh, but it's a little more condensed and easier to get around. Um, maybe what would be good, I, I think if I was going to be a fan in Vegas, I might invest in one of those little motorized scooters like Lewis rides around and, <laughs> and have about five spare batteries. And that way I get, uh, I get pretty, you know, pretty quick down the strip. You could always rent one of the, uh, the mobility scooters too, I guess, and just yeah, yeah, rip yeah. up and down the strip in that and not yeah. worry in about my little rascal. Yeah. And not and worry down, yeah. about who you're running down or anything. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So I, I'll be real intrigued to see what Vegas does for that, you know, cause you're right. If you have that many people, um, and they're all consolidated around the, you know, certain streets and, and, uh, the street circuit and with it shut down and what it does to local traffic and just commerce, local commerce, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, people trying to get things done. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they manage it. So you're going to try to go. I don't know. Um, you know, I've, I've been to several and, and, um, you know, having with this website, having, you know, covered Formula One for a long time and having worked with Shell and having, uh, you know, media creds and, and when I'm there, I'm actually working and, and developing content for the website and podcast. Uh, that's what I enjoy most. Um, and I got to be honest with you, it'd be, it's difficult to go back um, from working the actual race and interviewing people. Uh, and you know this from your trips to Vegas. It's kind of difficult just to go and sit in the bleachers and watch a race. I, you know, I, I want to be in the in the paddock, talking to the people that do it, developing content. And yeah, I mean, apart from your home sitting on the TV, the best seat in the house is is in the paddock. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I've met a lot of the drivers and and um, a lot of the team personnel, and uh, I've even uh, spent a, a race in the paddock club, uh, which is I think. Friday and Saturday tickets were five grand a piece, and the Sunday was ten grand for the paddock club. Wow! And I didn't pay that; I was a guest. But it, that's a whole different experience. Yeah, if you have the means, do the paddock club because it's it's epic. It's funny how experiences like that will completely ruin you for an event. They do. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it's so true, Jeff. It just you know I've been in the media center working, interviewing people, developing content, recording interviews. Uh, at several races. I've been in the paddock club. I've worked with manufacturers, Shell in the past. I'd love to do something with mobile. Uh, and, you know, having done that and had that access to really uh, do deep dives on the series. I mean, the funny thing is, if you went back to our website, went back to our content uh, from five, eight years ago, there's, <laughs> I sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but when we were working with Shell, there's wonderful content and access they gave us. 
you know, back then. It's just mm-hmm. unfortunately Formula One in America wasn't that big. So a lot of people didn't see it. But if you went back and looked for that content, there's some really interesting stuff uh, that we were able to get from Shell and Ferrari, et cetera. And I still reference uh, that a Ferrari sh- uh, flew me to Italy to tour the Ferrari factory. And I still talk about that trip and the things I learned about Formula One uh, to this very day. So it pays a dividends for Shell to work with us. But you're right. Having done all that, it spoils you because the idea of just going and setting in uh, grandstand H at turn five and seat, you know, 83 doesn't really do much for me. I completely get that. A few years ago, my wife and I went on a road trip to Seattle and we wanted to take in a baseball game and we got tickets from a a radio consultant that I was working with at the time. And he says to me, Hey, I, I got you tickets for the Mariners. I got you some sweet tickets. And I thought he meant S-W-E-E-T E-T-T, tickets. Yeah. So he hands us this this envelope of tickets and we get back to the uh, the Airbnb and we open it up. And no, it's the All-Star Club suite. It's the suite. It's the suites. And so yeah. the only thing that wasn't included was alcohol. Otherwise, mm. it was we get up there and it's like, well, here's the station with traditional baseball food with hot dogs and peanuts and popcorn and yeah. stuff. And here's the prime rib station and here's the fish station <laughs> and here's the... the we, right. Every, between every inning, we went up and stuffed ourselves yeah. we had to roll ourselves out of there. We should, but that yeah. has wrecked me for going to any yeah. kind of sporting event. When I, I go to a go I to a, a Golden Knights game, and I'm like, okay, where's the prime rib station? This is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the same for the Indy 500. You know, I've worked with uh, Shell. I've uh, spent time with Roger Penske in the Penske operation. Interviewed all their drivers. Sat in the suite. Uh, in the, I mean, it's hard to hard to go and sit on the back straight at Indy in a grandstand now, you know? And I saw video on your website. You did a hot lap with Sebastian Vettel, right? Yeah. I've done that twice with Seb. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> First time was, uh, uh, in a Ferrari F12 in Austin. Um, and, uh, it was great. I get to interview him, uh, while we we're driving around and we had a good time. It was just very tongue in cheek, but uh, had a great time in that F12. That was great. But the uh, the amazing one uh, that I don't have a GIF of on our website is uh, Ferrari at the end of the year. They always have uh, uh, Ferrari Mondiale. Uh, and they do it around the world. Well, one year they did it at Daytona. And so our my friend, who is a co-host at, on our podcast, Paul Charsley, who is a real race car driver, and he's the sporting manager currently for the Heart of Racing IMSA team. He was helping coordinate. They were trying to have the world record broke uh, for the most Ferraris on a parade lap. And I think we were at 860 some odd Ferraris and 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 they ran out of drivers. So Paul said, well, you know, if you're going to be here with shell and Ferrari, why don't you drive one of the Ferraris? So I did. And uh, while we were there as we're going to shell and, they said, well, now we're going to do some hot laps. And I thought, well, I've already done some hot laps in, in the Ferrari. And they were like, no, 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 no. You're going to want to come to this one. And they literally came and dragged me uh, out of the event. And I uh, went down there. It was Sebastian. And so we got into a Ferrari 488. And uh, and they gave me a helmet. And I thought, okay, well, that's for real. Because the last <laughs> time I didn't need a helmet. Right? So we're going to be doing some speed here. And I got in the car with Seb. And, uh, you know, say what you want about Seb, but he's a great driver. And I got in that car and we went through the infield section, came out on the straight and we're, we, and he pegged it. And when we got down to the, the chicane, we were at a, I looked over, we were 185 miles an hour. And, uh, my wife was like, you're scared. I was like, hell yes, I was scared. <laughs> I mean, every, you know, this Jeff, the whole world changes when you get over hundred miles an hour, everything gets a little weird, you know, but at 185 miles and it gets really weird. And, um, so anyway, but if I was going to do 185 miles an hour, I would not want to be in the driving seat. And what better way to do that than with a four-time champ? When they hand you a helmet, you know, it's going to yeah. get interesting. <laughs> it's, yeah. Shit, shit just got real, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I want to talk about your guys' podcast, the Park Ferme podcast. I've listened to several episodes and, and I got to say, I, I'm really enjoying it. The thing that I like about your guys' podcast is I feel like you make it really accessible to uh, not just super whammy major F1 nerds, but to, to casual 
watchers of the sport, people that just enjoy watching the sport and enjoy watching formula one. You guys do a really good job of, of making the podcast accessible to those fans as well. Uh, well, thanks for saying that. And it's very kind of you and thanks for listening for sure. It's um, yeah, it's uh, you know, look, it's not everybody's cup of tea. We've been doing it. I, I, I started the website in 2005 uh, because I, I got tired of going to forums uh, where people somehow equated your your post count with your knowledge of Formula One, which is weird. Um, so I had people that had been watching Formula One since the ripe year of 2000 telling me that I'm an idiot and I've been watching it since 1972. So thank you. Mm-hmm. No, thanks. <laughs> so it, it was like flaming people. It was the Wild West. And I thought, you know what? This is back in 2005. I've carried a hell of a lot of water for Formula One over the years. And I said, you know what? There needs to be a safe harbor for new fans to Formula One that can go and, 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 and communicate and talk and engage with veteran fans without being berated or harassed because they're new or, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get to see Jimmy Clark race in Watkins Glen in 1967. Kill me. You know, I'm sorry. You shouldn't have to. And so that's uh, so I created uh, uh, the park for May in 2005. In 2007, we started recording podcasts um, and uh, we're well, I've done a whole interview series called uh, uh, F1 Downshift. And with those, uh, we're at set, a podcast 778. And then with the downshift interviews and TPF stories, I don't know if you've listened to any of our TPF stories podcasts. I do. Those are fun. Um, and they're all about like history. Uh-huh. Uh, it's taking a second look at the history of motorsport. So if you go to our website, you'll see those too. Um, so anyway, yeah, we're well over 800. Uh, you know, I don't, we're got to be in the six, seven million downloads by now. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but to your point, Jeff, we, I'll tell you the weird thing. And it just dawned on me this year. I created this website and podcast as a safe harbor for new fans to Formula One to be able to engage with veterans. And the podcast is supposed to, we said this back in 2007 when we started, we wanted the podcast to sound like two good friends sitting at a pub, having a beer, talking about the sport they love. And a lot of people have co-opted that, but that's we we said that back in 2007, and that was the vibe we wanted. And I think we achieved that. And there is this level of colloquialism and and uh, just conversation that Grace and I have, and that Paul and I have, uh, that just comes natural to us. We're very comfortable having done this for so long, almost to a point. But the weird thing is is that we wanted to bring new fans. We wanted to take America to Formula One, back to my you know, former statement. And so we thought if we could bring them into veterans and just make them feel safe, ask silly questions, that's okay. We all ask the same questions at one point in our life. It's okay. You know, if you're asking me, you know, what does DRS do? Don't, don't worry about it. I'll tell you. It's no skin off my, my uh, back. It's easy to tell you. I'm not going to berate you because you don't know. And so it was interesting. Since DTS, I find now that I have to create a safe harbor for veterans to try to engage with new fans because the new fans that we have have Googled it for 20 minutes and have come up with some really interesting concepts and thoughts about Formula One, which I'm glad they're doing that. But when you wade into the waters with people who have been watching it for four decades, you may want to pump the brakes a little bit. You know, we've seen a lot of water under the bridge. And uh, and you bring up and it doesn't take very long to make that unravel because they'll say, well, this is crazy and what they're doing with this, uh, this such and such and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, well, you mean like the J damper at Renault? Like, well, what are you talking about? Well, Google it, you know, <laughs> it just come on, man. You know, I work hard to try to make new fans feel welcome. I want them because I was a new fan and I want them to feel welcome. So anyway. I'm glad to hear you say, because you're a new fan, right? Mm. And you got into DTS. You came to the podcast. It's accessible. We're not, we're not 
lording over you, our galactic knowledge of Formula One. You know, Paul is a race car driver. He is a professional race car driver. He's been around Formula One since he was in diapers. His dad, his brother, they ran Formula One teams. He could wax poetic for days on stuff you would never understand. And we're, we don't do that. So we try to make our podcast um, as, as our one of the first reviews we had on Apple uh, podcasts. One of the very first we reviews would said um, funny and occasionally insightful. <laughs> so what we always like to say is that we are occasionally insightful. And uh, so, and we try to be, so our point is Jeff, we want to, we want to have fun with you. We want to, we want you to feel like you've pulled up a chair in the pub that you've grabbed a beer and we're all going to sit and we're going to have a beer and we're going to talk about the sport we love. And, you know, Jeff, you'll have some questions that you weren't aware of spa 98 and what happened there, by the way, you have the F1 TV app, go back and watch spa 98. Um, And so you weren't aware and so we'll talk about it and then you'll share your opinions and you have some new insight and fresh take on it. We're open ears. So that's what we try to do. We can get in the weeds if you want to. Uh, and sometimes we do, but we want to make sure that it's accessible to new and veteran fans and we don't patronize veteran fans in the process. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, Todd, where can people find you guys online, your website, your social media links, and of course the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So you can go to the Park for May. It's P A R C F E R M E. That's a racing term. Uh, the park for uh, on Twitter. It's the park for May at the park for May uh, Facebook uh, page, the park for May. Everything's the park for May. Uh, you can look up my, my personal Twitter account, which is at uh, uh, negative camber underscore. Um, and, uh, and on, it's on Apple iTunes and uh, Patreon and, and all those good places. So just look for the park for May and you should find us. Excellent, Todd. This has been a blast. I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, to jump on and have a conversation about this. It's It's been a lot of fun. Uh, no, the honor is all mine, Jeff, and I wish you the very best. Once again, if you want to keep up with all the latest from the world of Formula One, check out Todd and his team at theparkferme.com. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at theparkferme. And listen to the Park Ferme podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, all of these links are in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Jeff Does Vegas.